This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I'm your teacher, Jeremy Myers. Today we are looking at Genesis 3, verses 8 through 10. This is episode number 43. I've titled it, Do Not Be Afraid. I love this section of Genesis 3. It's just so uh, beautiful and touching. These three verses reveal something about the heart of God, which is so overlooked, ignored, neglected, even distorted by many in the church today. Listen, if you've ever been afraid of God, you know, thought that God is out to get you, to punish you for some sin, maybe if you think that the bad things that happen to you in life are because, you know, God hates you or is making you pay for something that you did in your past, this podcast episode is for you. And hey, if you like what I present in this podcast episode today, I think you also like my book, The Atonement of God. The topic that I share with you today is really the focus and core idea of my book, The Atonement of God. So if you haven't read it yet, it contains sort of 10 areas of life and theology that are radically transformed by viewing them through the crucifixion of Jesus. So um, we're going to just look at it. Actually, it's probably one or two of those ten areas in today's podcast episode. So there's eight or nine others that I address in the book. And by the way, if you have the book or if you get it, I've gotten a few emails from people who say the first 70 pages of the book are sort of difficult to get through, sort of hard to read. It's where I talk about the atonement itself. Uh, But after that, it gets more easy to read, more down to earth. So persevere or, hey, you know, just skip those first 70 pages, 72, 73 pages And uh, the book is about 200 pages long, so there's still plenty of meat, plenty of things to think about after you uh, get past those first 70 pages. That's when the uh, 10 items, 10 areas of life and theology that are transformed by the crucifixion of Jesus that I really begin to talk about those. We're going to look at one or two of those today as we look at Genesis 3, 8 through 10, so stick with me in this episode of the One Verse Podcast. So what we see in Genesis 3, 8 through 10 is absolutely beautiful. Uh, Really, the the rest of chapter 3 is stunningly beautiful in what it reveals to us about the heart of God. But these three verses set the scene, and they show us how to understand God and see God's heart of love towards you and me. And to to show you just how beautiful these verses really are, I I first want to relate to you a sermon I recently heard about this very text that we're looking at today. The pastor was preaching from Genesis 3, 8 through 10, and as he began, he he started with the long introduction about the hatred of God toward sin, how God cannot look upon sin, how, how sin makes God angry at us, how sin just 
You know, God's holiness and righteousness wants to lash out in hatred towards sin and condemn sin to hell forever. You know, it's sort of one of these fire and brimstone sorts of sermons that we sometimes still hear. The pastor even quoted with with approval the famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards, which is titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, If you've never heard of this sermon, I have a portion of it on my website. There'll be a link in the show notes. You can go read it. But uh, in one point in this sermon, Jonathan Edwards said this about people who sin. This is a direct quote from the sermon. There are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are ten thousand times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Good stuff, huh? (laughs) That's the famous sermon of Jonathan Edwards, preached during the Great Awakening here in the United States. And the sermon goes on like that for for quite some time. Uh, In the sermon I was listening to by this, this other pastor... Uh, who, who quoted some of that, that uh, quote from Jonathan Edwards, that sermon of Jonathan Edwards, the pastor turned to Genesis 3 and read the text that we ourselves are considering in today's podcast episode. And the pastor went on to teach that the reason Adam and Eve went and hid deep in the garden after they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. The text says, you know, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So the the pastor went on to say that the sound of God was a terrible, fearful sound. It was it was the sound of a righteous God coming to judge and condemn the pitiful wicked sinners who had completely disobeyed him and destroyed his good creation. The pastor went on to say that the word for sound, the sound of God, here in Genesis 3.8, could be understood as the sound of a tornado. Uh, The sound of God walking through the forest here, he says, wasn't some gentle breeze, but was a tornado. It was ripping up trees and thrashing them around in the garden. There was howling winds and flashes of lightning and crashes of thunder. And that, the pastor said, is why Adam and Eve went and hid. They were terrified of God's wrath. They were afraid for their very own lives. The application of the sermon was that um, this is why, in fact, the, the pastor basically said God did come to kill Adam and Eve. God had promised them, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They ate of it, so in his anger, in his wrath, he had come to destroy them. But the pastor said that the reason, that the proper response to Adam and Eve here was that they were was afraid of God. 
Um, and they hid. And that is why God showed a little bit of mercy on them, because from God's perspective, Adam and Eve recognized that they had offended the righteous God. And so the pastor said the proper application for us is to have that similar response to God, to quake in fear before the righteous and holy God. Uh, the pastor said that if Adam had just stood his ground and you know God had showed up, and Adam had said, yeah, what's the big deal? It's not that big of a deal. All I did was eat a piece of fruit. God would have struck him dead on the spot. But since they showed proper respect, proper fear of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Uh, then God had mercy on them in the text. And of course, God had to cover over their sin with a blood sacrifice. So, you know, that, that's not written in the text, but that's how many people understand what when God makes clothes for them, uh, clothes of skin for them. We'll talk about that. And then, of course, God cursed them. He cursed the serpent. He cursed the woman. He cursed Adam. Again, that's what the, the pastor said, um, you know, so that there was pain and childbearing and sorrow and toil by the sweat of the brow. They'd bring forth fruit from the ground, all of this, and then banished them from the garden forever, separated them from his presence, but at least they got to live. I tell you, my heart broke when I heard that sermon. The application to the sermon was, when you sin, be afraid. Be very afraid. And, and, and tragically, that is what so many Christians today think about God. You know, they think that while God loves sinners, he hates sin, right? How often have you heard that? that sin cannot be in God's presence. That, that God cannot even look upon sin. Right? God is a consuming fire who judges sin, condemns sin, wants nothing more than for us to get rid of our sin. And I know there's Bible verses to back up those ideas, but I think that even those Bible verses are terribly misunderstood. Much of modern popular Christian theology holds this idea about God, that he, he, he just wants nothing more than to destroy sin and Sometimes sinners get caught up in his wrath, and he's angry at us for our sin, and this whole idea breaks my heart. I believe it breaks the heart of God to hear people talk about him this way as well. Let me tell you this. The truth about God is what we see revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect picture of what God is like. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Colossians, and Hebrews, we, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? So, if you want to see God, all you have to do is look at Jesus. Listen, if you're ever trying to figure out what God is like, here's a good habit for you to get started with. Uh, if, you, if you want to figure out, would, would, would God do this? Then ask yourself, would Jesus do this? Can I picture Jesus doing this? Can I picture Jesus saying this? Can I picture Jesus commanding this? And if the answer is no, then whatever is being said or taught about God is simply not true. So can you imagine Jesus dangling sinners over a fire like you might dangle a spider over a fire? No. Is that what Jesus does? He does not. The thought, the thought is abhorrent. Therefore, God does not do that either. Jonathan Edwards was wrong. Can you imagine Jesus raging through the Garden of Eden like a tornado, knocking down trees, howling and yelling with rage, 
trying to find Adam and Eve so he can flatten them like bugs? Well, some people think so. I mean, Jesus did, after all, go through the temple overturning the tables, right? He had a whip of cords and he was driving out the animals and all that. So, so people say, well, look at Jesus there. He was mad. Maybe that's, that's uh, how God was behaving here in the garden too. But, but look, the, the reason Jesus explains why he does what he does there in the temple, it's not because he was lashing out at sinners. He, who's he lashing out at there? First of all, he doesn't harm anybody or anything. None of the animals get harmed. Um, he just overturns the tables, scatters the money all over the ground. But the reason Jesus does this is because the religious people were turning the temple, the house of prayer, into a den of thieves. They were using religion to steal from the poor. Notice in the Gospels, the only time Jesus ever gets upset or angry is when he's confronting religious people for how they use religion to manipulate and control others, to, to, to steal from people, to, to keep people away from God. When they construct and erect barriers to keep people away from God, that's when Jesus gets upset. But when Jesus encounters sinners, he's always gentle, merciful, gracious, loving, kind. He protects women caught in adultery. He befriends the tax collector and the prostitute. He hangs out with the sinners and the outcasts from society, the lepers. Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted, to deliver the oppressed, to liberate those who were imprisoned in darkness. He didn't come to add his voice to those who condemn and accuse sinners and the unrighteous and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the outcasts. So I ask again, can we truly imagine Jesus raging through the Garden of Eden like a tornado, knocking down trees, howling and yelling with rage? I, I cannot imagine Jesus doing that. So what is going on here in Genesis 3, 8 through 10? Do you want to know what it is we see? We see a God who doesn't care one bit about the failure of Adam and Eve. Let me clarify that. He does care, but he only cares because of the consequences that will come up on Adam and Eve as the objects of his love. He hurts for them because what they have done will hurt them. It will bring hurt to them. God doesn't send the hurt. He doesn't cause the pain. God does not punish people for their sin. He doesn't curse them. We'll see that. There are curses in Genesis 3, but not upon Adam and Eve. He does not curse humans for their choice to eat from the forbidden tree. Right now here, though, in verses 8 and 10, we basically see a God who is not too concerned about Adam and Eve eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He doesn't care so much about sin. The text says that Adam and Eve heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The word for sound here does not at all mean what the pastor said it means. Uh, The the word does not imply violence. It definitely does not indicate the sound of a tornado. The Hebrew word is call. It means sound or voice. Those are fine translations. It can refer to the sound of a man calling to somebody. Uh, It refers in some places to the bleating of sheep to the tune of a flute, uh, or even in Genesis 4.10, to the crying out of blood 
the blood of Abel from the ground. Now, are any of those loud noises? No, they're not. Bleeding of sheep? I mean, it's it's it, it's a sound, but it's not loud like a tornado. Tune of a flute? No, that's a comforting sound, a soothing sound, sometimes even a soft, melodious sound. Crying out of blood from the ground? It's a silent sound. Nobody hears that except for God. Now, yes, kol, the Hebrew word, can refer to loud sounds. In a couple of places, it refers to the echo of thunder or the cry of men in battle. All right, so how do we know when a loud sound or just a normal, regular, even a soft or silent sound is in view? Well, guess what? How do we know in English? If I am talking about a sound and I want to indicate that a sound is loud, how do I do that in English? Well, <laughs> I use an adjective. A loud sound, a thunderous sound, a piercing sound, a crashing sound, right? We, we use adjectives to describe the word sound. Guess what? Hebrew does exactly the same thing. When a voice is loud, when a sound is loud, they say, like for as a voice, if a person is yelling and shouting rather than just talking, they say that they lifted up their voice, right? To indicate that they are shouting, they're speaking loudly. Uh similar when 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 loud sounds are used like in the voice of a battle or with with uh, thunder you know it's 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 describing it uses adjectives to indicate that a loud sound is in view there's no adjectives here in 38 the sound of god is just the sound of god walking in the garden and what what is that sound what did god sound like in the garden well truthfully we don't know But it's not a loud sound, or else the text would have indicated that it was loud. In fact, uh, to be honest, the text indicates that the sound of God walking in the garden was, was fairly quiet, actually. Because it says that when they heard the sound of God in the cool of the day. Uh, the, the word for cool there is actually the word, the Hebrew word, ruach, which means wind or breeze. Or spirit. It's, it's the same word used in Genesis 1-2, which says that the Spirit of God, or the wind of God, hovered or fluttered over the surface of the waters. This is not some roaring, rushing wind. It's a gentle breeze over the waters. You remember, we talked about that when we looked at Genesis 1-2. The same word, ruach, is used again in Genesis 8-1 to talk about how the wind of God blows over the waters of the flood to cause them to recede so that dry land might reappear, right? So this word typically refers to air in motion, and that's why it's translated as a cool breeze in some translations, such as in the New King James Version here. And a cool breeze is not thunderous, is it? A cool breeze is not a tornado, No cool breeze in the history of the world has ever knocked down trees. A cool breeze is quiet. It flutters through the leaves of the trees. It's refreshing, calming, soothing. A cool breeze makes you want to close your eyes and take a nap. And that is the way God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. It reminds me a lot of how God came to Elijah in 1 Kings 19. You remember this story. Elijah goes up into the mountain to speak with God. 
The thunder comes. God was not in the thunder. The earthquake and the fire, the storm, God was not in any of those. He was and has always been in the still, small voice, the whisper of the wind in the trees. I think this is what Jesus indicates as well in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. And he equates the movement of God to a wind in the trees. I personally think this is also what Paul had in mind in 2 Timothy 3.16 when he wrote about the theopneustos. The scripture is theopneustos, God breathed. Right? This is the voice, the breath of God. Not a loud yelling, it's a, it's a whisper, it's a fluttering through the leaves of the trees. Look, after Adam and Eve do the one thing God told them not to do, God comes to the garden as a whisper, as a cool breeze. He comes to calm, comfort, and soothe. He comes to say, hey guys, it's okay. Don't be afraid. I still love you. I'm still in a relationship with you. I'm not angry. Yes, because of your choices, there will be some rough patches ahead, but don't worry. I will walk through those with you. I'm the creator God. I'm the one who brings order out of chaos. We can get through this together. And that is how to read Genesis 3.8. In fact, uh, you know, because that word ruach is used here, it's the same word used back in 1.2, and the same word used in Genesis 8.1. In both places, it's this wind, this breeze hovering over the chaotic waters. A a similar meaning is implied in all three places. In Genesis 1-2, remember, the the wind of God is moving over the surface of the waters, and it's this first gentle act of God to bring order from the chaos of the deep. Remember, the the word deep there, to home, has this malevolent idea, uh, almost evil, and it's chaos, Right? Uh, it's the way people viewed it, but God flutters over it and he brings order to the chaos. Same in, in, in Genesis 8-1, after the flood, this flood which covered the whole earth and killed everybody, destroyed everything, right? Chaos and, and just death and destruction. And, and when God steps in to bring order back to it, back to that chaotic situation, he does so with a gentle, cool, soothing, calming breeze. And that's how to understand it here as well in Genesis 3-8. Yes, chaos has now come. Remember, the serpent is a chaos creature. Chaos has now re-entered into creation, God's creation. But what does God do in the face of chaos? He does not introduce more chaos, more storms and thunder and crashing. No, he sends a gentle breeze, a wind, a cooling whisper, his spirit fluttering over the earth to calm the storm and push back the water so that dry land appears once again. And Honestly, this looks very much like Jesus, doesn't it? He comes in the Gospels and in your own life to our sin and our pain. And rather than judging, condemning, or punishing, he says, Oh, I'm so sorry that happened. You know, that that really looks like it hurts. But don't worry. Don't worry, I'm here. I'm not offended. I am not angry. I love you. 
I will walk through this with you. In fact, that's exactly what we see God do for Adam in verse 9. In verse 8, God comes walking in the garden. Why? Why does God come walking in the garden in verse 8? I believe it's because every day, God, Adam, and Eve went on a walk. They took a walk through the garden every day. And this is why God is coming to walk in the garden. Nothing's out of the ordinary for him. Nothing has changed from God's perspective. God shows up for his daily walk and, hey, Adam and Eve aren't here. Right? So verse 9, when when Adam doesn't show up for their daily walk, God calls out, Adam, where are you? (laughs) Where'd you go? (laughs) I'm here for our walk and you're not here. Did you lose your watch? You know, what's going on? Did you oversleep? (laughs) No, no. Does God know where Adam is hiding? Of course he does. You can't play hide and seek with God. Jonah tried that as well. (laughs) Didn't go so well for Jonah either, but but God knows where Adam is hiding. God knows where Jonah went. We can't hide from God. So, so God, when God calls out, where are you, to Adam, this is not so that God can find out where Adam is. It is to let Adam know that nothing's wrong. God still wants to be with Adam. He still wants to go on a walk with Adam. Again, this is a truth we see in the incarnation of Jesus. Lots of people say, well, God can't be in the presence of sin. God cannot even look upon sin. Really? Then how is it that Jesus, who is very God of very God, came to this earth to live and serve and minister and eat and touch with sinners like us? If God cannot be in the presence of sin or look upon sin. If if that's true then Jesus wasn't fully God. We don't want to say that, do we? No, of course, Jesus was fully God. Therefore, God can look upon sin. He looks upon sin all the time, and it doesn't bother him. doesn't offend him, doesn't anger him, nothing like that. He can be in the presence of sin. That's only the way he can walk through our sin with us, help us through it. When, when God comes in the garden saying, where are you, Adam? He knows what Adam has done, but he goes looking and calling for Adam anyway. It reminds me of the parable of the, the 100 sheep, the 10 coins, and the two sons in Luke 15. Remember that the shepherd loses one sheep out of 100, and he loves that sheep so much, he goes looking and calling for it until he finds it. The woman loses one coin, and she wants that one coin so much, she stops at nothing until she finds it, which is then funny because she, then she, <laughs> she throws a big party for all of her friends and family because she found her coin. She probably spent more in the party than the coin was worth, but again, that shows the father's love. And the same with the father's son, his wayward son. The father loves his wayward son so much, he sits by the window every day, hoping, watching, waiting for his son to come home. And of course, when he sees his son from a far distance off coming home, he runs to meet him. What we see from those three parables in Luke 15 is exactly what we see here in Genesis 3.9. The Bible, it's not really about man in search of God, but about God in search of man. As far as God is concerned, he doesn't care one bit that Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree. Their actions do not affect God in the slightest. Look, after they've eaten, does it affect God at all? No, he shows up for their daily walk. He calls out to them. From God's perspective, 
Nothing has changed. Think about this. When sin entered the world, what changed? Did sin change God? No, how could it? God can't be affected by sin in that way. I know, I'm I'm talking about sin a lot, all right? I understand, I've mentioned in previous podcast episodes. Anyway, uh, it's not really talked about until Genesis 4-7, but even still, let's just think about what's going on in our lives and here in Genesis. Sin does not affect God. It only affects us. We think God is angry at us when he is not. We think God is out to get us or punish us when all he wants is to love us and walk with us. And then because of what we wrongly think about God, we become afraid of God and we hide from him. Notice how Adam responds in verse 10. He says, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Right, this is Adam's response to God when God calls out for Adam. Notice, Adam and Eve are now naked and afraid. That's what we see here in verse 10. Remember back in 225? I think the podcast episode title was Naked and Unafraid. Well, now here in 310, they are naked and afraid. And we're going to look at this more of this discussion between God and Adam in the next episode. Uh, We're sort of overlapping our our studies. This is 8 through 10. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at, I think it's like 9 through 13 or something like that. And that's because I want to show you another foundational and revolutionary truth from Scripture. But I just want to close out today's episode by focusing in on this fear that we see here in verse 10, that Adam and Eve felt, that caused them to hide from God, even though God was not angry at them or upset at them or anything like that. Adam admits here in verse 10 that they were afraid. Verse 8 said the same thing, that they were afraid, and that's why they hid. And this is so important to recognize their actions here, because that is also why we, you and I, try to hide from God whenever we sin. We believe that when we sin, God hates us, he's out to get us, he wants to burn us, crush us, destroy us. And where do these ideas come from? They come from religion. Religion teaches us these lies about God. But Jesus came to reveal the truth about God. Jesus came to reveal, unveil, expose the lies of religion. Jesus came to show us that God is not angry with us about our sin, that God does not punish us for our sin, that God only wants to walk with us through our sin, that he has always loved us, always forgiven us, and he always will. Yes, there are consequences for sin. But these are not consequences sent on us by God. These are consequences brought on us by sin itself. They're not punishments from God. Sin doesn't bring a curse from God or anger from God, punishment from God. We think God is angry, so we hide from him, but God is not angry. (laughs) In the text here, we sin. He comes along whistling a happy tune, ready to go on a walk through the woods with us. (laughs) God is not as concerned with our sin as we are. Wayne Jacobson often says in his podcast, and I've read it in some books by, uh, let's see, it's in um, The Mystery of Christ and Why We Don't Get It by 
Robert Farrar Capone, an excellent book. Both of these uh, authors, teachers say, God's not in the sin management business. <laughs> He's not that concerned with it. He doesn't punish sin. He doesn't count our sins against us. As Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 5, 19-21. Right? The only reason God warns us about sin, here's why, is because he loves us and he knows that sin hurts us. And because he loves us, he doesn't want to see us hurt. That's why God warns us about sin. Other than that, God doesn't care about sin. He cares about us. He doesn't want to see us get hurt. God himself is not offended or angered by your sin. God has no problem whatsoever being in the presence of sin, entering into our sin with us, not so he can participate, but so that he can rescue us from it, to protect us from the pain and walk through us with the the heartache and the headaches caused by sin. And the incarnation of Jesus reveals this most clearly, but we see it right here at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve do what they should not do. And what does God do? Well, he shows up for his daily walk. (laughs) He didn't show up to punish them. He's not walking around carrying a big stick, looking for Adam so he can hit him over the head. No, all the fear is from Adam alone. This is why, by the way, by, by the way, in the Bible, whenever a human encounters God or the angel of the Lord, right, they very often the first response is to fall on their face before him in fear. And what are the first words of God or the angel of the Lord to the person in this way? It's always, fear not, or do not be afraid. John says, the Apostle John, in his first letter, in 1 John, there is no fear in love. Why is that? Because perfect love casts out fear. And where is perfect love? Revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And that this is how God has always felt to us. God loves us completely and perfectly, and that means that there is absolutely nothing to fear from God. That's the message of the Bible. It's the message from God. It's the message of Jesus. It's the message right here in Genesis 3. God is saying, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's the message of Genesis 3. It's the message of Jesus. It's the message of the entire Bible. It's the message for you today. And I hope that's an encouraging truth. I hope you're liberated from fear, fear of God, because of this truth. You get this one truth to your mind, so much of the rest of the Bible is going to make sense. Oh, I know there's some difficult passages in, in the Old Testament. Eh, the flood, for example. And then Joshua, you know, God apparently in Joshua is telling them to go out and slaughter all these people. What is all that about if God is so loving? If God really doesn't, isn't bothered that too much about sin? What's all that about? Ah, well, I talk about that in my book, The Atonement of God. If you've got questions about all that, you know, just, just pick up a copy. Start reading around page 73. <laughs> and see these 10 areas. One of these is that we're going to understand how to read the Bible to what I presented to you today. God is love. In him there is no darkness. There's no sin. There's no violence at all. God looks exactly like Jesus. 
Brian Zond likes to say, Jesus is what God has to say. Yeah. That's what we see here, Genesis 3, when we read Genesis 3 through a crucifixion lens, through the lens of Jesus Christ. Even here, at the very first action of disobedience to God, when Adam and Eve eat from the tree they're not supposed to, God doesn't care. He shows up for his walk. And that's how God views you as well. He wants to walk with you, love you, comfort you, spend time with you. He's your biggest fan. You don't need to be afraid of God. You do not need to fear God any longer. He forgives you completely. He loves you completely. That's what we see here in Genesis 3. That's what we see in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening. Please come back next week when we look at Genesis 3, 9 through 13, and we're going to discover the fifth foundational and revolutionary truth from Genesis 2 and 3.